Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear and the extraordinary story of the man who managed, among others, uh, Herman's Hermits and 10cc and the snooker stars Jimmy White and uh, Alex Hurricane Higgins. What could possibly go wrong? It's all in this <laughs> terrific and very revealing and entertaining memoir called I'm Into Something Good by Harvey Lisberg. Harvey, welcome. Very nice to see you. Hi. Nice to see you too. And you're, where are you? You're in California somewhere. Yes, Rancho Mirage, uh, California. It's about 15 miles east of Palm Springs, which is 112 miles east of Los, of Los Angeles. Right. In basking in sunshine at the moment at 8 o'clock in the morning. Oh, good grief. Well, we're weak. We're weak with envy. But look, the book starts with you. Uh, you know, you grew up in Manchester and all sorts of really interesting stuff about the rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool. And it's interesting, the Beatles that has the big impact on your life and most 21 year olds at the time in 1963 fantasized about being in the Beatles but you fantasized about being their manager so <laughs> why was that why did you why, what was it about Brian why did you decide that was the career path you wanted to take well I was writing songs at the time originally and that was my idea to be a songwriter as I played the guitar and piano and my songs weren't that great and certainly nobody wanted to do them particularly um the Beatles came along and their songs were just superb. And, you know, it was like, how do you, if you're a painter, how do you compete with Picasso? You just can't, you know, it's just, they were just so good. And there was a breath of fresh air and it was a lovely feeling to be alive in those days and wait for the Beatles record and go into the shop on the first day and play the album out till it's absolutely worn down to, uh, I just love the Beatles. I just love what they did. There were, as I say, it was, it was just that. But it was Epstein, um, wasn't it? Coincidentally, Epstein was manager of that. Yeah. Of them. So, and he was a Jewish kid from Liverpool, and I thought, well, why not? He didn't have any other experience before that of managing a band. So I thought, well, I'll get a band and I'll manage it or something like that, and they'll do my songs as well. And that that band is Herman's Hermits. Yeah, that was that was a bit lucky. 
<laughs> I've got to say, that's, that's pretty lucky, that is. That is extraordinary. <clears throat> it was either tremendous foresight or tremendous luck. I think I'll, I'll go for the latter. Right. So what did you see? Peter Noon, I think, was 15 or 16 when you first saw him. Yes, he was a cheeky what? chappy with a tooth that stuck out. And we went to this youth hall uh, in um, Collingwood, in, yeah. in the suburb of Manchester. And uh, we saw this band and they knew we were coming. They knew there was somebody coming that was going to look at them. And they'd arranged in the audience their cousins and friends and God knows what. So I went to see this, this set where they were doing like, I saw her standing there, Chuck Berry, Johnny Be Good. Every band did all the same songs. And at the end of each number, they were almost charged off the stage by these screaming fans. And I thought, wow, we've got something here. And it turned out to be a lot of them, a lot of their friends. They told me afterwards they knew I was coming. They baked a cake. So that was it. <laughs> but, but when you were involved with them, the other person involved in them from a kind of production point of view is Mickey Most. And uh, you have a kind of difficult relationship with Mickey Most. Is that fair? It was a love-hate relationship, but he was very talented and very important in the picking of songs originally. We got him purely on a really peculiar whim. To, um, Herman's Hermits had a lot of work when I started managing them. <clears throat> we filled their book. They played lunchtimes at the plaza. They played the Ritz in the evening. They played, even did triples certain nights. Uh, and um, I was in the um, lunchtime session of the plaza. And I went into the manager's office, who I was friendly with, and he had a piece of paper, a letter from Derek Everett at EMI. And I said, do you mind if I borrow that letter? And I wrote to Derek Everett saying, could I come and see him? We've heard all about you. I got an unbelievable letter just saying, what a wonderful guy this Derek Everett was who I'd never heard of. Yes. And he wrote back and said, yes, yeah, sure, come down to London. And I said, I've got this band and, you know, et cetera. He said, well, he's an, unfortunately, I'm nothing to do with the, the artist. He was in sales. I, I, just, I just put... Uh, I just sell singles for EMI to all the different stores. He knew nothing about yeah. it, anything to do with it. He says, but by the way, there's a new guy on the block called Mickey Mouse. Would you be interested in meeting him? And I just heard House of the Rising Sun, I think, oh, which is just <laughs> a different planet. And so he introduced me to Mickey Mouse, and that's how that started. And then Mickey didn't, I sent Mickey the picture of the boys, and he liked the look of Peter Noon. Peter had a tremendous look, you know, straight, Catholic, blue eyes, boy next door, not those horrible Beatles with long hair or those Rolling Stones. Oh my yeah. God, I don't want my daughter to go near them. But here was a cheeky kid, kind of Cliff Richard clean, you know, that sort of thing. And he was, that was it. And he, he, then he didn't, then Mickey Mouse disappeared off the scene. I didn't hear from him. Right. So I kept mithering and mithering. And finally I had the brain with, well, I'll send him two tickets and I'll book him at the Midland Hotel for the night and see if he'll come up and watch the band. And he did. And uh, we took, I took him to see the band. And on the, on the way back, he says, you've got to get rid of two of them. They're no good. And uh, by the way, I've got this record. Would you like to hear it? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I had a crummy Triumph Herald car, which was my mother's. But the only good thing about the car is I'd invested 
absolutely brilliantly in this Phillips record player. You know, do you remember the they were wobbly? Yeah. I couldn't believe he this. Pushed the <laughs> thing in, and I thought, Jesus Christ, that is unbelievable song. Do you like it, Harvey? Yes, I'll take it. Anything. So, well, you get rid of two of the band, and you got a deal, and we'll, we'll put them in the studio. So that and was I'm into something good. That was. Yes, like, and that was we yeah. played a cover version of Earl Jean's uh, version. Uh, which was like 92 in America or something. And there's a long story attached to that, which I don't know whether I can go into very much. But it's, and it was an instant success, story. wasn't it? So that, that, was a, that was a hit in the UK. But what nobody predicted with Herman's Hermits was just how big they were in the United States. And that's kind of got lost to history, hasn't it, really? They were, the in, second biggest they were act, enormous. It, they actually outsold the Beatles in one month in yeah. 1965. Which was pure, nothing to do with Mickey Most. When I saw them originally, they played Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter, which was a little thing at the end of the act where they put, Peter put on a boy's uh, schoolboy clothes. And they Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter. And then yeah, he yeah. did this little song. And when it came to recording, uh, Mickey needed a track to finish the album for MGM. And they didn't, and he said, Have you got anything? So they said, yeah, we well, you know, we've got this. And they played this song, which you recorded in one take, without them knowing it recorded it. Really? Right? Mm. And then it was on the album. And then the DJ started picking this up, because everybody in America, if you were English, you were treated as royalty. Please stick around. Don't leave, Harvey. I love to hear you talk. Yeah, right. outstanding chemist shops and talk yeah. to good, good way of picking up girls in those right. days. And just... Open your mouth, and that was it. And they they would just loved you because of the accent. I don't know what it was, but it, that's what it was. And uh, Mrs. Brown, MGM said we want to put it out as a single. Kimo <laughs> said, "No way, no way." He had nothing to do with it. You know, it was one take. Yeah, altogether, not even separated the voice from the backing. They just did it like a live number, and. They said, well, we, we've got this demand for it. Every DJ's picked it up. And so Mickey said, and they said, we'll pay you on 600,000 if you let us release it, whether we sell one. <clears throat> so Mickey said, um, no, million. If you pay me on a million, they agreed to pay him on a million if they release it. It was the highest entry into Billboard. How right they were. I know. Well, they knew because there's like 4,000 radio stations playing yeah. all night. So they know the demand is tremendous. And I think it's very hard for an English person or even Mickey Most or even myself to appreciate how big that was. That was yeah. infuriating to people like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're going to ask you about the Stones because uh, Herman's Hermits were the second biggest UK act in, in America at one point, and then you did a joint headline tour with the Stones and a tour supported by the Who. Can you remember anything about those particular events? I could never forget them. Um, the Rolling Stones was just individual date, which we did in somewhere, I think, I think it was Ohio, I don't know. We did one night, oh no, Philadelphia. We did a night with them. Then when we got there, there was an argument of who was going to finish, who was going to close the show. And I thought there was no way. Peter could have gone on before anybody could have gone on as opening act. He would have just blown everybody away because they loved it. And um, I thought, well, we had a discussion with Andrew Legold and 
I realized that the, there was a curfew on uh, because you had to finish at a certain time. And I thought, well, if we go on first, we won't have that problem of going over curfew and then cutting the lights off and police coming in with machine guns. God knows what they do. But I mean, <laughs> last week in Coachella here, uh, Golden Voice were charged $117,000 for the headline act on the Friday night going 27 minutes over curfew. God, <laughs> So, you know, that's America. You don't mess around because the... Towns want the tax, the police are there, it's like, it's chaos. And, you know, acts aren't known to keep to time, you know. So we did it, and we did the show, we went down really well, and and of course we went on like a storm, and then Mick Jagger went down, and he, and the thing about that thing, date was, excuse me, was that 50% of the people probably liked the Stones, and 50% liked Herman's Hermits, whereas our original thing on Nebworth, which was 10cc, like 1% probably like 10cc and 99% wanted the Rolling Stones. It's slightly different. So you, it didn't really matter who went on first. They had the following and quite likely the following might not watch the Rolling Stones and might just go home. It's totally different. Right. And then you, you asked me about the Who. The Who did a complete tour with, uh, with um, Herman's Hermits. They asked to be our opening act. And uh, I agreed, and we had lots of incidents from that, which I think I related in the book. My, my favourite one, of course, was after every game, we used to play a card game called Brag. We used to finish the game, and there was a five of us, like Lech, myself, Peter, whoever it was, used to go in the, in the room. They used to have whiskey or whatever it was, and we played this Brag. I get a phone call, 2.30 in the morning. Hello, is this Mr. Lisberg? And I say, yes, this is the manager of the hotel in Birmingham, Alabama. I've got something to tell you. He says, the toilet, Mr. Moon's room, is not in anymore. I said, what do you mean? We have lost a toilet. I said, could you explain what you mean by you've lost a toilet? He says, yes, it's not in the wall anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, Keith Cherry bombs. Poured all these cherry bombs down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing had blown away from the wall. And of course, it was a thing of the who. Whenever we were on a bus with them, we'd look around and bloody Keith Moon was dropping these bloody things out the window onto the motorway. And you go bang, bang, bang all the way yeah, yeah. Like glorified bangers. And that was that was Keith Moon, who I really thought was a fantastic drummer. And I was very annoyed, actually, about the papers reporting something last week. I said that he was an a complete maniac, but a genius as a show drummer. And, of course, they missed out the genius of the show drummer mm, right. to, get the, to get the headline hustle. <laughs> so <laughs> so along, along, alongside you there, you've got a picture of you with uh, Elvis Presley, who you met. This is because Herman's Hermit's star was so high, he wished to be associated with them. Is that right? We arrived at a hotel in Honolulu and there was a telegram. The Colonel and Elvis would like to meet you. Would you be interested in coming to the Polynesian village to meet us? So I said, no. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, Elvis was the god. I mean, the Beatles were the gods of the 60s. Well, Elvis was the king way before that. You know, he was, he was amazing. Anyhow, we... 
go down to the sofa driven, of course, down to the Polynesian village, which is about 10 miles from the hotel. And there's like little huts with thatched roofs, you know, this kind of Polynesian huts. And inside was Presley, and we go inside it. And he's there, his bare feet, white trout, white... Um, in the photograph, he's wearing a white shirt. I don't remember him having that shirt when mm. we met him. It was like bare. And he had six henchmen round him, all looked like him, all with the same hairstyle. And when he laughed, they laughed. It was like he was the king, and whatever he did, they did. If he, if he cried, they cried. If he gets up, they get up. Yeah, yeah. And it was like that. And he came over, and, he, and it was just a very exciting time. And the colonel was there, and he really insulted me. That I lost swine. I thought, he said, oh, a fat Jewish, a fat Brian Epstein. I thought, great. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from him, that's rich. <laughs> yeah. That was his first greeting. So anyhow, but I got to know him. I got very friendly with him. Got to love him in the end. I mean, he's been so maligned. Oh, my God. And he told us stories that it were, they were just great stories from his uh, starting with Elvis. And it was just fabulous. And I, I kept a relationship with him. I went to his 90th birthday and so forth. We, we, we met him quite a few times. I was kind of oblivious to the fact that he was a crazy gambler. It hadn't occurred to me at the time. The only thing I knew is when Herman's Hermits went to Las Vegas, um, the manager came up to me and said, by the way, um, do any of your boys play on the tables? I said, well, yeah, they'll, they'll play blackjack or something. He said, well, uh, I've come to all your rooms. You, all your food is paid for, every single thing. And each one has got a credit limit of $100,000 if they want to buy. Oh, my God. Oh, Lord. And that's how Vegas worked. It is. All these stars, Sinatra, who you go down, every one of them were yeah. probably into these, you know, pits for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was as easy. And I said, there's no way I want that facility. Well, Lack, for the guitarist with, with Herman Sermitz, he, he, he sat down on a blackjack table and he was prone to have a little bit of whiskey. He liked whiskey. And he sat down there and he, we were there at 10 o'clock in the morning. We arrived, sat at this table and then he's delivered whiskey and Cokes and he played. We go off, we're chasing women, we're going to restaurants. We keep Every time we got back to the hotel, Lack was a bit more like the leaning tower of Pisa on this seat. He sat in that seat for 39 hours or something. Oh, but we'd God. had the time of our lives. And he, he'd lost <laughs> a fortune. Really. I don't know how he managed it. And he didn't lose any money, but I just don't know how he, how he was there. Oh, he was in a, a kind of a whirlwind of his own. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was Lack. Wonderful guitarist, by the way. And very unfortunate that Mickey Most was so unappreciative or um, he didn't encourage the boys. They, they could have been brilliant songwriters as well, but they never had a chance. They never had a smell. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, we should ask you about Graham Goldman because that was the beginning of the next big installment of your of your life, you know, when you got involved with 10CC. But with, um, Graham Goldman, you, you saw presumably more as a songwriter than a, than, a, than a pop star at that stage. No, he was in a band called The Whirlwinds, which was a bit like a Jewish-Irish show band. Yeah. <laughs> Playing all the... Alexander's Ragtime Band was, was yeah, the yeah, closing yeah. number, with everybody doing the hand bit, you know what I mean, as they go down. No, they were... And they were fantastic. And they had this manager who was just... It was just... It was impossible. He was arrogant. He didn't want to speak. He was very protective, maybe rightly so. And I always wanted to, oh, I'd love to represent that band. This was way before I'd Herman's Hermits, by the way, way before. I just loved them. And I went to see them when they practiced and I got to know Graham, who actually lived about a thousand yards from my house. So we were both in Salford, very near to each other. And uh, I said to him, look, would you like me to uh, do some work with you? And I encouraged him and I said, well, why don't you become a songwriter? And uh, he was working in some shirt manufacturer or something at the time. And uh, I offered him a wage uh, just to keep him, if he was interested, with some pittance, mate. Well, it, I suppose it didn't have pittance in today's terminology, but probably with five or ten pound a week just to keep the wolves at bay. Yeah. If you're living at home with your parents and you've no mortgages and three Ferraris in the garage, you don't have worries about money particularly. So, and he started writing. And, uh, and the first song that he wrote, we, as we did it together, more or less, we were sort of, I said to him, look, how's the rising sun? It's a fantastic chords. Why don't you try and write a song on those chords? And he... Um, he very surreptitiously changed the last chord minimally, but and then started writing and I discussed changing the tempo and doing something in the middle. I was very involved creatively at that stage with him in writing. And then his father was a playwright, wrote amazing lyrics, which I personally didn't like for Fool Your Love. They were too flowery as far as I was concerned. But and people said to me today, Did Graham write those lyrics? I'd give the world if it were mine to give. Well, mm. a 16 year old kid from Salford does not write that. There is no way. But maybe a 45 year old playwright that's had a, yeah. a really a genius yeah. mind. Yeah. His dad oh. contributed a lot, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. And then things like Art for Art's Sake, Money for God's Sake was his. No Milk Today was a thing in a yeah. bottle. I mean, and Jaime was, Jaime was a genius and very unlucky because he should have been much bigger himself, but fortunately lived it through his son eventually 
and got all the credit. Mm. And it was a great team. It was a lovely team. We'd go every day, write every day, songs poured out. It was just wonderful. I've got to ask you one question that yeah, absolutely fascinated me in the book. You, you say that Graham Goldman you worked with a long time, you know, were involved with him. And uh, you talk about when his first marriage broke up, you said it suddenly became clear that he was in love with music. And I wanted to, rather than anything else, and I wanted to ask you, you've dealt with loads of musicians over the years. Couldn't you say the same thing about all of them? They're all in love with music. That's a good question, which is very difficult to answer. I hate to generalise about all. Um, I would think wives cause a lot of problems in the music industry. And I think when they're not married, they're free. And then they get married and there's a different ball game then. And then the wives obviously are entitled to some attention, you know, and uh, often don't get it. Um, Graham definitely main love in his life was definitely music, just insanely. And um, I don't think every musician's like that, but yeah, maybe a lot of them are. But then maybe they shouldn't get married. <laughs> right. But that tends to be unavoidable, really, doesn't it? Talk, talk to us about TCC, because they were an utterly huge record-selling group, but really curious setup, weren't they? They had a real division of labour of what they all did. They all brought something very different. Is that right? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, Eric was very, very good-looking, very talented, very good producer, very technical. He was involved in all the original production work. Graham was a genius at the guitar and a good songwriter. Kevin Law, <laughs> they were just lovable. They were crazy. They were avant-garde. They refused to do any, anything commercial. So they had these other two, <laughs> Graham, Graham and Eric, had to kind of yeah. rein them in so we could get something out of them that can go out to the public. And it was a very happy foursome, really, initially. And then, well, initially and, and, and then, you, then you write about, Mark and I were talking about the, yeah. the episode of the gizmo, and that's Kevin and Lol, you know, yeah. indulging their kind of zany idea of inventing a new instrument. It was actually an extraordinary affair. That was, it must have cost a fortune, and it didn't work at all. And they were they wanted to market it commercially, didn't they? And eventually, it yeah, essentially it split the up the band. Really got, the mood got really popular, and they wanted to do the same sort of thing on a guitar. We had the the wheel rotated to give a string effect that kept didn't finish. I don't know what the word is. It just goes on constantly. And they did they did get it produced, and there were American people interested in it, but it. It was totally off the wall. I mean, it was like, it's as though they had an insatiable desire to do different things all the time. They did soldiers, model soldiers. They did paintings of cowboys and Indians, all sorts of things. They were very artistic and they were very, and they had a tremendous sense of humour. I mean, and Kevin, he could, he could impersonate, he could do Kenneth Mars from the producers better than Kenneth Mars, is unbelievable. I always remember going to a, a restaurant, a Middle Eastern restaurant, and this woman was from Lancashire, married this Armenian guy, 
and used to say, two almost, two almost and not with the derby. And Kevin asked her, she said, what would you like? She said, two almost and not my derby. <laughs> like this Lancashire, Lancashire sort of Middle Eastern voice. Oh, God, he, he was he was very tight. And a great voice. They all had good voices as well. Yeah. That was the interesting yeah. about 10cc. But that and album, people, the Consequences album, you talk about how I think it cost at the time, it was 1977, it cost a quarter of a million pounds, which is whatever that is, 1.5 million now. And... They had to, there was three sides of kind of instrumental waffle and then three sides of Peter Cook dialogue and the occasional song marketed in a box as a kind of classical album. And it was a catastrophic failure, wasn't it? It was brilliant. <laughs> yes. The commercial. It was, it was where did I, you know, the producers, where did I go right? Well, yes. this was where did I yeah, go yeah, yeah. wrong? <laughs> but no, it was, it was their indulgence. And... They'd just broken away from 10cc. They got into a studio. They were in the manor. There were beautiful yeah. girls serving them food all the time. And God knows what drugs they were on. Yeah, Peter cut paralytically drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, cracking jokes all day. And it was yeah. a holiday atmosphere. So there was no way that was going to be finished quickly in the first place. I wanted a single album. And then they did Honolulu Lulu. And they played it to me, 17 seconds. I said, that's it. We've got the hit. Yes. Now finish it off. And they finished it off all right with about 18, well, about 10 minutes of instrumental garbage at the end of it. It wasn't garbage, but it wasn't a commercial because they didn't want commercial. If they smelt commercial, they went the other way. But, yeah. Which is a, a challenge when it comes to, to managing people. So you, you've managed loads of people <laughs> in your long career. Do you get on with all of them? Do you still talk no, to them? No, I, don't, I never got on with all of them. Some of them hated me. You know, I mean, I mean, it was like once I got to the punk era, a fat Jewish capitalist manager would never fitted in with the sort of druggy young road manager that took over. I mean, no, they, they we were we were the other side. We were the establishment, right, right. And there were other acts that inside acts that didn't like me because. I tended to look as though I was always promoting the leader, the head man, you know, because publicity, to get publicity, you've got to go where the publicity is. Yeah. And like with Sad Cafe, Paul Young was a, a charismatic, enigmatic person. And obviously, if I was a reporter for The Guardian, I'd want to interview Paul Young. I wouldn't be interested in anybody else in the band, although the band were very good and exceptionally good. And I think there was a lot of resentment. So the resentment usually came from the band to the leader onto me. Oh, you were always on his side type of thing. Right, you know, right. That created an atmosphere. So after, you, after your long period of, of um, managing musicians, you had an adventure managing snooker stars. And the biggest and the most and the strangest and most demanding of them all. And Jimmy, Jimmy White was the first one. I think Jimmy White, at the age of, even at thirteen, was playing you know gamblers, wasn't he? And 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 kind of gangsters uh, in pool halls for money, you know, and was a real liability. So did you see him as just a a massive challenge that you had to take on? He was the most exciting player in England at the time. Yeah. It was more exciting than Higgins because he was faster than Higgins. Yeah. And he was young and he was fresh and he was raw. And he was the artful dodger from Oliver. He was a cheeky, yeah. just, he had the gift of the gap. He would melt anybody, 
didn't do obviously didn't do very sensible things. And the great thing about this book is it's rekindled my relationship with him, and I speak to him every other day or oh, every right. week. And it's a fun. T- and he's telling me stories which I cannot wait to tell people. But I'm going to save it till it's ready. He he was fantastic. I, we got him, and I. I did, a, I did a fairly good job on him, I thought, as far as... I wanted to change the image because I thought the whole of snooker looked like um, penguins, you know. They all had their suits on with their bow ties and the white shirts, and they all looked as they came from a different generation, maybe King Charles III's generation. But I was wanted to, to put a new spin on it. I actually tried to get them to do a hairstyle, which was a punk hairstyle, but everybody refused to allow me to have it because I think it would have really fitted him at the time because he was crazy and he'd have this punk hairstyle. They yeah. were loved, so they did this curly thing and that worked and his image was good and we got him clothes and we got his teeth fixed and we got it all sorted out. And of course, the next minute, Higgins is knocking on the door, having seen all the publicity that we got and it was good stuff. We got Litchfield to do the photograph. You know, yeah. it was like... We went and a week, I got more publicity then than, as I say, 20 years in this, of rock and roll, six weeks in snooker. And it was, it was pandemonium. And I think I changed the face of snooker to a degree in the United Kingdom by insisting on this image thing. Which people didn't like at first, did they? The press were a bit oh, no, no. upset David about it. David Vine introduced me after Jimmy White had been thrashed 9-0 at the yeah. Crucible in the first thing. And I'm doing this interview with him. And he said, do you think it was, something like, do you think it was worthwhile having his head and da-da-da-da-da and, and makeup and this, that? I said, well, actually, David, I saw you getting your makeup done before you went out. And then it buried oh. I it don't was, like that. Ouch. It was the end of that. <laughs> I've got to ask you, I've got to ask you one final question. Jimmy White had his teeth fixed. You say Jimmy White had his teeth fixed. Did Peter Noon ever have his teeth fixed? Because Peter Noon's teeth it were his fault. That, that tooth came out. He had an extra tooth that protruded when he was about 15, and then finally it came out. I don't wow. remember exactly how, but it did. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think it was surgically taken out. It just came out. Right, right. But teeth, really important in America. Very important in pop <laughs> Well, the are. joke is that the teeth are usually pretty awful in America compared well, to <laughs> Oh, really? Well, that's huh? not the joke they yeah. tell about us, is yeah. it? <laughs> but no, look. I think the dentists in England are very, very good. I don't think, I think somehow the teeth here are very, they're clinically correct, but sometimes people look like rabbits, you know. <laughs> too much, t- too many teeth, you know. And I mean, everything was dazzling. Yeah, absolutely. It looked natural. David well, Bowie look, had an enormous transformation at one point, didn't he? Extraordinary. All this and more is in Harvey Lisberg's absolutely fascinating book. It is. It really is. It really is. I'm glad well, you like it. He's got so many illuminating things about, uh, you know, dealing with musicians over a long period of time. I'm into something good by Harvey Lisberg. Very nice to talk to you, Harvey. Lovely to talk to you. Great to see you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.